0: You better be listening to Sleazoids, or I must break you. Mr. Jones? Yes. It's about your son, sir. I've got a bit of bad news. It seems he fell off a roof. If you could deny me me to do nothing,
1: knowing what I mean now.
2: Didn't you see? No, I don't.
1: i bloody well done. The matter is... That young man blows the whistle on it. This entire operation will have been much worse than
0: pointless. The islands. coming yeah, Where the ladies are mighty fine. Lydia! The life is mighty nice. Bobby, a brother, trust a brother. And the law. No, you in trouble, man. Oh, yeah. Is the mighty Quinn. You have a license for that?
1: Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleazoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise, and at the end of each episode along with our honorary Sleazoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon.
2: Next week is actually still a mystery to me, but Josh promises me that it's going to be top notch, so... Join join the sleeves it is still a mystery that's right I forgot
1: to I I need to coordinate that better sometimes Uh, we decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover Patreon subscribers also get an honor shout out and two bonus episodes every single month which we have uh, been doing for something like four and a half years so if you haven't made the jump yet there are like 110 or more bonus episodes as well as our bonus transmission series where we talk about new release genre films which we actually just did one recently on like Top Gun Maverick the Northman everything everywhere all at once so Mm -hmm. if you uh, are interested at all in that patreon.com slash podcast uh and speaking of which we shall give the new patrons their shout out uh here we had johnny naif we had uh travis king matt nissi uh cole blake uh barham uh austin ammer punches 2104 cole hannon austin sheroad are we still going we are still going um <laughs> gordon brillin uh pelican grief that's a good one um uh mark addison kaser sage martin uh joe collins just mike and chad o'neill so thanks so uh much to you folks for signing up hope you are are all enjoying those bonus episodes yeah thank Um, you that's the one plug for the week the other plug as always is uh, apple podcasts and spotify as well as spotify you know, I was I was on the Apple podcast uh, listeners for like four years, um, but now the Spotify listeners can also rate us. So if you are listening on either one of those platforms, scroll down to the very bottom and give us good old rating and review down there. It helps us climb the ranks and find new listeners. And the very last plug for the week, as always, is merch. If you like the poster art that based out of Toronto horror artist Trevor Henderson did for the show you can get that basically put on anything you can think of and you guys have thought of these things notebooks pillows hoodies just posters to hang in your house uh, anything you can think of at the link in the description if you're interested as well as over at sleezoidspodcast.com uh but that is it for the intro welcome back to another week as always i am your host josh lewis and joining me also as always is my co-host jamie miller welcome back everybody welcome i think two weeks ago would have been the last time uh you folks free listeners would have heard from us and we would have had a very special returning guest on um violet Luca the uh really awesome critic over at uh, harper's magazine and film comment and with her we broke down some uh, uh, sort of art house existentialism in post-war japan we talked woman in the dunes from 1964 directed by uh kinji or hiroshi teshigahara Um, his sort of like absurdist horror fable about a guy who has to uh, go to work every day, which is digging sand out of a hole that he is being (laughs) trapped in has sort of environmental and a labor aspect to it. That's really interesting. And we paired that with Kinji Fukusaku's, the director of battle royale his uh, 70s adaptation of a very uh, apocalyptic almost wartime drama novel that uh, he was very passionate about and sort of informed with his own experiences being drafted as a 15 year old into um the second world war under japan
2: he's balancing and, uh, having, so many
1: tones in that movie i, I loved that he, it's crazy yeah, it's it's a very psychological fractured film. It's got full on decapitations and executions and archival footage of mass starvation that it was experienced by the Japanese. So if you haven't uh, seen that film, it's called under the flag of the rising sun it came out in 1972. So we talked both of those mm-hmm. with Violet two weeks ago. If you haven't heard that episode, go back and check it out. Uh, and then last week over on the bonus feed Uh, because everyone is sort of talking about a brand new David Cronenberg film called Crimes of the Future, which we will be covering on the bonus transmission series soon, um, we decided we would go back and cover the biggest film of his that we hadn't covered yet, which was his 1996 film, Crash, obviously. (laughs) Uh, His uh, techno porn, crazy romance, insanely uh, uh, controversial and erotic, And there was only one movie you could possibly pair that with. Uh, Probably (laughs) not true, but this was a good one to pair it with. We paired it with uh, Paul Verhoeven's Showgirls because uh, we wanted to uh, stick in the realm of uh, controversially erotic. And so we broke down Verhoeven's uh, stab at a sort of glamorous Hollywood satire but uh, taken to some really depraved exploitation kind of depths. And uh, yeah, it was fun watching uh, David and Paul, friends of the pod, uh, <laughs> get a really down and dirty and filthy. And uh, yeah, it was a really big episode that we talked over on the bonus feed. So again, yeah, patreon.com slash podcast if you're interested in that episode. Uh, but moving on to... This week, we have a very special guest joining us. He is a contributing editor at The Drift and at Jewish Currents, and his writing can be found in such places as... New York Magazine, New York Times, The Baffler, The New Republic. He's also the co-host of a excellent political investigative deep dive podcast called Blowback that I'm sure a lot of our listeners uh, have heard of. And each season tackles a uh, sort of wartime period in American foreign policy, the Iraq War, the Cuban Revolution, and coming soon, I believe, the Korean War and the decades of context that led to and came out of those events. That guest is Noah Colwin.
0: Noah, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me and thank you for that uh, very accurate introduction. (laughs) (laughs)
1: No problem. I've been been trying to research them. I I put the work in on those ones. But also, it wasn't that hard because I genuinely really do. I don't listen to many podcasts, honestly, I'll be honest. But Blowback is one of the few that I do listen to. It's a really fantastic show that you and Brendan do. Um, And uh, we actually cited it once on our show because we were tackling the films. I don't know if you've heard of them. The films of Ron Ormond and Estes Perkle. They were uh, a a duo of a vaudeville magician turned exploitation filmmaker and essentially an insane deep south Baptist minister and anti-communist crank and they made like together they made like fire and brimstone propaganda recruitment tools in the 60s and 70s trying to like scare Christian children out of watching Looney Tunes and going to drive-ins and having sex (laughs) that's that's awesome I
0: actually I I actually collect like uh, a lot of like pamphlets and old newsletters and magazines um, you know, like what I would classify broadly as subversive material uh, from both the, 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 the far right and the far left. And definitely like the uh, like bizarre, like cultural mutations that right wing, uh, like anti-communist stuff takes on is wonderful. Um, Brennan and I are both really, really big fans of uh, Tribulation 99 uh, by Craig Baldwin. Um, as sort of like the, maybe like the most fun and exciting satire of that genre.
1: Hell yeah. No, I'm going to have to, uh check that out but i I was really taken with because uh in in that in those films specifically there's like this whole thing about how not only are these kids by doing all the sinning gonna bring about hell but they're literally gonna bring about like castro foot soldiers who are gonna like kidnap (laughs) who are gonna do an invasion of america and the deep south and like kidnap their kids and brutally torture and murder them by shoving bamboo sticks through their brains and putting them into re-education camps and it it, shows
0: all of this like graphically yeah 10 year old gets decapitated it's pretty wild, <laughs> and I think you know the if if if, if your listeners like that, then they're gonna love season three. Um, uh, <laughs> no, I'm uh, I half kidding. Um, you know, I think that uh, the story of season three in the Korean War will talk uh, a lot, or, or it will speak a lot to the. You know, I, I think like what you're describing in terms of you know the sense of like what was this communist threat and how did Americans imagine it? What texture mm-hmm. did they give it? Um, exactly. What was the you know what, what was the nature of it? That they just that Americans described it. Uh, you know, how did they describe it to themselves and to one another? And you know, it's it's I mean, it is it remains an enduring fascination, to say the least, for myself. <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah we and, and we're interested in how filmmakers and stuff were interested in
1: depicting that because I've I've you know you've yeah. seen you know uh, ministers talk about that kind of stuff but to see a real deal exploitation filmmaker like do an entire film of reenactments of it while you're hearing and,
2: the sermon itself like so yeah it, his, it, it you know, really words. was
1: something yeah it's yeah it's and, and to have and to have learned from you guys about operation Peter Pan where all the American Christians were essentially taking minors from Cuba and like that's what they were saying they were terrified that Cubans
0: were going to do to them. So it was just, it was very interesting. Um, I mean, I, I to, definitely, uh, I, I strongly recommend your listeners to go watch. It's on YouTube. Um, the film LBJ by Santiago Alvarez for some really interesting and accessible, um, like, you know, Cuban political, revolutionary Cuban uh, political film and, and art from that period as well. Uh, you know, it's one of the things of the podcast, and you know, Brendan has done some marvelous and exciting uh, stuff with the trailers. Uh, but you know, one of the things of the podcast is that, like, you know, we're not there. There is <laughs> there is a fairly limited visual representation going on there, uh, so. You know, it's, I, I, we don't get a, a tremendous opportunity outside of, like, some specific moments. Like, you know, we've done some movie episodes to plug that. But I, but I would really urge, you know, if, if that's what sort of, like, that kind of trippy sort of thing floats your boat, but you're looking to see, uh, you know, something, uh, you know, intelligent and not just fevered behind the camera, uh, oh boy, <laughs> yeah. Santiago Alvarez is your guy. Hell yeah. Check it out. Well, uh, Um,
1: thanks. Thanks, Noah, for um, for joining us. And and as I kind of figured by asking you to come on, you would uh, you were going to give us something in the realm of kind of uh, political thrillers of a certain kind. So uh, what two films have you brought with you this week and why did you pair them together?
0: So the two films that I brought with me this week are uh, The Whistleblower from 1986 and The Mighty Quinn from 1989. So just in, in, you know, for chronology's sake, we'll start with uh, The Whistleblower, I suppose. And I picked The Whistleblower because it is a, an insanely timely movie. It debuted in theaters in November 1986. That was the same year that, for better or for worse, the Iran-Contra scandal was made public in the United States. Now, the Iran-Contra scandal to sum it up in about a sentence or two is effectively a hidden arms for hostages deal. It was a way for Reagan uh, administration and military and intelligence officials to secretly negotiate the, ex, uh, the exfiltration of uh, hostages held in uh, revolutionary Iran and to bring them back in exchange for guns that the, uh, In exchange for, uh, sorry, hold on. They would buy, sorry, they paid for the hostages and then the arms, and then the arms from the deal with the, uh, from Iran were routed to Contra rebels, uh, right wing rebels in Central America. It's a comp, it was basically a convoluted arms dealing scheme under the table. But what it sort of spoke to was this really wild and kind of unseemly military industrial complex that had gotten out of control, uh, as explained by the fact, you know, as evidenced by my stumble a minute ago there. Uh, You know, it was it was really more than, you know, for the purposes of this conversation, it could be understood as this, you know, uh, as, you know, one corner of the Tupperware lid, you know, like kind of popping up, revealing, you know, like this like nasty thing inside, which was this, you know, uh, black market of death and drugs and trafficking that was making its way, you know, through Latin America at that time. And, you know, and then, you know, realistically, and, and in fact, around the world. But that was what was that's what came into view that month. And that same mm-hmm. month, The Whistleblower, which is a movie about a young intelligence, you know, a young young man in this, uh, you know, this world, uh, it is, you know, uh, he he dies and his father, Michael Caine, who is also of this world in this milieu, um, you know, is but is, you know, supposedly a little bit more of a. If not himself, a World War II vet, a little bit more of the old Britannia spirit, um, he's sort of forced to, you know, figure out like, well, my my son's dead. What do I do about it? You know, and, and kind of to pick up the pieces and 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 figure out what resulted in his death. And mm-hmm. you know, to me, the, the the most interesting thing about the movie, aside from you know, like like in the context of of its release and that timing with the Rain Contra, is just that it's a great example of how movies, you know, really can. Uh, You know, like any piece of, you know, great art, uh, they can really reflect and kind of absorb, uh, you know, like a sponge, the you know what's going on in the world even if you're not relating the specifics of it you know this this movie was adapted from a novel published a couple years earlier however you know in the UK this was an incredibly difficult time for manufacturing and defense contracting and defense contractors were no exception and this movie is i think a really really fantastic and sort of exciting you know way to kind of, you know, get a sidelong glance at this sort of crazy world that for millions of Americans and then, you know, people around the globe who had largely been at the other end of the barrel of that gun. uh, But, you know, Americans were really, you know, they they began to wake up to it uh, as Mm -hmm. something that was really existing. Now, did anything happen as a result of that that we could call political accountability? Absolutely not. But I think this movie, (laughs) and part of what drew me to it was just that it's like, it's so rare that you get something that's really just such an exciting and incisive Um, You know, response to an event that hadn't really even yet happened. For sure. For sure. And, and the
1: mighty Quinn is like a little bit, uh, you know, has a little bit more of like a caper kind of sillier quality to it. Whereas the whistleblower is more in the realm of, um, you know, kind of like the, the the paranoid seventies, um, thrillers that were coming out around that time, as well as kind of, you know, some of the sort of leaner, um, genre fare that was even coming out of the UK that even Michael Caine was in some of the more sort of brutish roles that, that, um, that he was taking on. So yeah, this double feature is like one of, um, sort of, uh, overwhelming forces and characters kind of being awoken, um, to them by kind of like seeing their worlds kind of like fall apart in, 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 front of them uh the mighty quinn obviously having uh denzel play a little bit more of a sort of paperback detective kind of character who finds his uh his island being infiltrated by white money and uh you know being funneled to uh anti-communist revolutionaries and finding himself in a crazy conspiracy like that but yeah no i'm very excited to talk about these two uh films with you so let's uh let's jump into it let's start off here with the whistleblower
0: could be made to know their secret world has put out the light of the ordinary world. What would you believe?
1: What do you want, Frank?
0: I tell you what I want. I want to believe in England again. The Whistleblower, a Jeff Reeve production, starring Michael Caine, James Fox, Nigel Havers, Felicity Dean, and John Gilgood The Whistleblower.
1: All right, we are talking the whistleblower, the 1986 British spy thriller uh, directed by one Simon Langton um, and uh, based on the 1984 novel of the same name by one John Hale, and obviously starring um, uh, Michael Caine in in the central. A role as, uh, what's his name here? His name is Frank, uh, Frank Jones. And it also has a supporting cast that includes James Fox, um, Nigel Havers and Felicity Dean. And, um, This is interesting because we've talked about Michael Caine, what, Jamie? I think maybe twice before? We we haven't done like his his sort of like classic 60s genre films yet. We've kind of talked like more like middle period Michael Caine uh, because he got really big off of doing like heist films like The Italian Jobs. He did like spy films like his Harry Palmer series, including like The Ipcris File and The Billion Dollar Brain by Ken Russell. Uh, He did like rom-coms like Alfie and eventually made his way into like war films and thrillers. We did talk about him Briefly, in Brian De Palma's dress to Kill* in terms yeah. of thrillers, um, but he was well most well known in the UK for uh, his gangster neo noir films, which this is probably the most sort of uh, connected to in a way, Um, at least in terms of, you know, putting him in kind of like a conspiratorial investigative kind of mode. Uh, And he left a really striking impression as a performer in those films. Like Get Carter is one that Mm -hmm. Jamie and I have both seen. That's really excellent. Very good. And uh, we've we've actually covered Mona Lisa as well. Right.
0: Um, I, I, I think that he is like in this movie doing like it's it's one of my favorite maybe maybe it is my favorite michael Caine performance because He's really it's really good in this it's it's so unlike any other michael Caine performance that i had ever seen it's extremely subdued and it's basically mm-hmm. like if the the part where uh steve Coogan and rob Ryden are just doing michael Caine impressions it, it's as if that uh, except without like the <laughs> hamminess it's actually like absorbed and you just see like oh like all of this like you know like like like, like, like they're like He could if he, you know, he he was really able to, like, evince this uh, sensitive hurt side uh, that I didn't, you know, expect uh, necessarily from him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, because I'm I'm used to seeing him, at least in his sort of British
1: genre fare in this period, he was in kind of a more like kind of mean, brutish bastard kind of mode. Like, even even in films, like, opposite, like, the incredibly angry, barrel-chested short king Bob Hoskins, like, Michael (laughs) Caine came off as kind of, like, a scary guy when, you know, when he's playing, like, the pimps connected to the wealthy clients and everything like that, and in this... He's playing this character of Frank, who is a, formal Navy, uh, a former Navy man who is kind of just a kind of he's meant to be kind of like an everyday guy. He, he owns a, a, a small business. He goes kind of drinking with his Navy buddies and he just sits back and he's he's watching and encouraging his son to be this uh this successful uh, linguist uh, mm-hmm. for the GCHQ in, in the UK, intercepting and listening in on Soviet uh, messages in hopes that they, you know, will prevent some sort of uh, potential strike, as they see it. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting to tell the story from the point of view, though, of his father, who is kind of like this guy who just lives in middle class comfort and who used to be someone who believed in, you know, who believes in the country and that statecraft kind of protects this comfort and this middle class life that he's built for him and his son. And over the course of this film, as we'll talk about it, that sensibility for him is just, you know, destroyed as he discovers that, you know, his son who is killed is made expendable for uh, very, very dark and and bureaucratic reasons.
2: Yeah. And he's kind of developed this uh, keep your head down mentality. It does... Uh, allude to a lot of things in his past where it seems he did see a lot of corruption while he was in the naval force, but, you know, just kind of just kept on track and, and kept moving forward and, and nothing really affected him too personally. Um, uh, and then it isn't until this, you know, devastating moment in his life where his son's taken away from him that he realizes maybe he should stop looking <laughs> away and, and, uh, look into this a little deeper. I, because he's constantly before this happens, just telling his son like you're you're digging in too deep. You should just stop. Like mind your
1: business. Just you have a good job. <laughs> yeah. And also, my favorite detail is you have a good job. Have right. you seen the economy right now? Uh, I mean, you know, no, but this uh, is it's
0: it's that's like yeah. a when this movie's coming out in in 1980s Britain. You know, this is a few years into that rate reforms. And, you know, specifically when it comes to the civil service sector, you have huge layoffs. Um, and, you know, especially in the in, in terms of uh, bureaucracy, um, for people with soft skills, there was a real sense in, in a lot of the literature and, you know, the novels, and, and, I, and I think the stories of the time kind of reflect that, Kind of, um, you know, the, the the austerity that is coincident with the, you know, like the this rise of like the same kind of transatlantic nouveau riche, and in the case of this movie, you know, it's it's that or at least that kind of displacement. It's like, yeah, that's a it's a concern that you know is very uh, like. I guess to me one of the things it's like it it, it, it feels very you know it's it feels like a pretty uh, simple way of establishing uh, some kind of you know motivation for why somebody stays as part of a criminal enterprise except mm-hmm. like what is it you know why is it when that credit, what about when that criminal enterprise is the government and i think that that's mm-hmm. sort of like to me always what then is like the thing that then elevates this from like you know more than just a story about somebody who has an issue with how they make money at their job
1: <laughs> yeah 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 well it, it, this this cl- clicked for me when i kind of took a look at simon langton's filmography and saw that he was a tv director who was most well known for his adaptation of john le carré's novel um smiley's people starring alec guinness which is you know part of um his series obviously his smiley series that includes like tinker taylor soldier spy uh and i haven't seen that particular series oh by they're Langton, they're marvelous I've, they're, I've they're the best things, things ever
0: the be- they're the okay, best. Okay, I need to watch them. They're they're also <laughs> on YouTube. You can find them elsewhere. Um and the first season, the or like the first series uh, the, of Tink- the Tinker Tailor was uh directed by John Irvin. And John Irvin was uh he also directed Raw Deal and <laughs> That's right. I <laughs> believe he directed <laughs> that's such a funny director and, for that. <laughs> and um he also directed <laughs> Next of Kin with Patrick Swayze, which is another m- amazing movies and it is another amazing movie that you got that that would uh, fit right in for this podcast but it so this is uh yeah so th- this this movie basically the whistleblower has a very strong parentage this wine has many tannins
1: yeah, I mean, that that really clicked for me because I was sitting there going, you know, like we've we've covered uh, Le Carre, I think once on the show, we did an episode on 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 him around the time that he passed, where uh, we talked about uh, the spy who came in from the cold, the Martin Ritt adaptation, as well as um, the Russia house with yeah. uh, Sean Connery playing the British publisher, uh, who kind of gets swept up in the sort of the conspiracy of Soviet scientists and informants and and whistleblowers. And so it, it made sense to me when I was going, OK, I'm, I'm still starting to see where it is that this came from um, because you know the spy who came in from the cold was a great introduction for him because in his specific brand of you know British espionage storytelling and style where it was all sort of tradecraft depicted as this deeply tedious and unheroic and kind of soul-sucking endeavor it's you know intentionally not very exciting and not very action-packed it's it's you know more interested in being kind of nasty and and tragic in a way and this reminds me of that mixed with like a little bit of Pakula's kind of like paranoia from the 70s you got all the president's men the parallax view you throw in some of those sort of like cloak and daggers you know sort of the mounting cynicism and moral torment and the shrouded environments and watching eyes and listening ears at every corner even in the early scenes in this one he's what you think is you're just watching a nice British dad talk to his son about his job and you know you're interrupted by scenes of characters like clearly listening in on that conversation like something very mm-hmm. serious is already underway and And the state has already deemed these people dangerous and disposable
0: uh as part of their webs and their web of plans and and this is also you know there's some i think like very uh you know it's important like the the le carré reference is important to bring up because it also is sort of like it you know um, people may want to sort of rush to compare this to something like, say, the conversation, right? Another movie, mm, yeah. where yes. like this idea of surveillance and paranoia matters a lot. But I think that you know vibes are certainly similar. But I think like a more useful and kind of immediate comparison, um, you know, at least thematically, that really sheds a lot of light here is uh, at least in, in in the work of Lacare, like is, is the idea of decline and the idea of British decline, and that's something that I think in you know and and we'll talk about this in the Mighty Quinn because it's a very different kind of movie the thing that makes the whistleblower so fundamentally a british movie is that it's like yeah it's it's re, it's about like this 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 declining empire in every sense of the word like the more like the, like whatever like morality it had or sense of honor uh you know it's all like all the dignities going away and it's and and you know like you know, as in the long, good Friday to name another movie of the eighties, you know, it's the goddamn mm-hmm. Yanks that are, that are behind it all. The goddamn fucking Yanks. <laughs> uh, it always is, you know, they're always ready to one-up you, etc. So to me, that, that is like the, like the, 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 yeah, the, 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 the world that this movie takes place in is, is, is to me a very, very real world. Uh, it, it's, which is par- so exciting about it.
1: mm mm-hmm hmm. Well, and it definitely takes in the very, uh, you know, it, its central idea is one that is very similar to the spy who came in from the cold as well. I always think of that very famous line of his. Um, How long can we de- defend ourselves by methods of this kind and still remain the kind of society that's even worth defending? Um, that is kind of the thing that Frank Jones wakes up to. Um, well, and remember, film. and
0: remember how Le Carre, through George Smiley gives his own version of what the retort is, which is that like, you know, how, how does Carla f- fuck up or whatever?
2: Mm-hmm. It's
0: that he's a fanatic and that his fanaticism in the end will be the death of him or be the end of him. And that's half true. Like, because in the end, mm-hmm. Carla, I mean, at least within the context of Le Carre's own story, just, you know, actually I don't want to spoil it because I think it's worth not spoiling. Uh, And that's against (laughs) my rules usually. So I'm, I'm letting it be known that is how highly I think of that series Um, and, and the, and the books. Um, uh, But all the same, you know, the, the, the thing there is that it's like Smiley's answer is that it's like, you know, like, I'm like, you know, I'm not a fanatic, like we're not fanatics. And it's like part of you know what you see in Likare's version is that like in the in the in Tinker Taylor, who is it that is like, you know, like you know, like the the mole ridden intelligence agency? It's run by this new guy, Percy Alline, who is like, you know, uh like a you know and you know, again, one of these like nouveau riche, like enterprising young men, somebody who is not old money. And who is you know kind of like you know uh, you know sort of like the the Tea Party guy he, he, you know is the like a contemporary political analog in the U.S. would be like you know those Tea Party guys with the Ford F one fifty except he just has a corn cob pipe, and he is to my mind you know like a eighty thousand dollar pickup truck or whatever, and he is you know. Like, I guess the example in the whistleblower, you know, just advanced a few years is that what you end up seeing is that actually there are fanatics and they're not just fanatics about profit though. They, which is, they always have been, but there is also like a real ideological component to their fanaticism that I think like Le Carre does not, has not like did not make room for. And this movie does elevate a little bit with the villains that it has by introducing them and really representing them as kind of Thatcherite, which, you know, is like, you know, and, and for the, you know, if, if this is like up to eight on that time, Style, then like 11 would be the Ken Loach movie Hidden Agenda um, with Francis McDormand, if you've seen that.
1: Mm, I um, haven't seen that one,
0: um, or but Secret, I've heard good things. Secret Agenda. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, this was very much a current in the water, this idea of like a, a, a creepy, surveillance heavy British state that was really just like had forgotten the public interest a long, long fucking time ago. This is a very cynical public, quite understandably. You know, her successor, the next government, would fall apart because of illegal arms deals to Iraq. Like, this was a major story of that country at that time.
1: Yeah, well, and I, I think it's really interesting, too, that they they do confront the kind of You know, by the time we do get to the reveals and at the end of this film, which we'll we'll get to. But like there's there is this sort of larger kind of pointless table setting quality to all of the things that we end up when you end up finding out. It's deeply mundane what it is that they were trying to do and what they were trying to cover up. And the results (laughs) of it were very horrific, which I think just makes it that much kind of worse to a lot of the characters who experience this on the ground. Because, again, we're following this guy, Frank Jones, whose son works for the GCHQ as an intelligence and investigative officer and, and a linguist translating materials for them. Um, but he starts to get a little uncomfortable when there starts to be a mole hunt underway inside the GCHQ, because there has been, you know, so- someone who's been working there for 10 years has been revealed to be leaking information to the Russians. And they say, you know, we are they, they start turning co-workers and colleagues on each other, saying, you know, you need to watch out who you're working for. You need to not just be paying paranoid about the things that you're listening to. You need to be paranoid about everything that's happening at your desk, that's happening at your home and it's not only your jobs that are at risk here, it is the survival of the free world um, (laughs) as they say it as they operate behind the The Iron Curtain, and it's interesting to be dropped into this where his son Bob, played by Nigel Havers, um, is in the process of, you know, deciding that he doesn't think that he can really handle this work and handle that stress and handle, you know, all, you know, this this whole idea of informing on his friends and sniffing out moles and everyone who's comfortable telling lies. He's, you know, he's very unhappy with his experience and his father is like, it's a good job. It's a good job though. you can't just, you know, you can't just like throw that away. Um, and it, it's, it's interesting to just put it from this very small scale, intimate d- domestic perspective that you are dropped into this from, which then, you know, starts to ratchet up um, intention as, you know, you know, his his son very clearly keeps getting deeper. He starts becoming obsessed because he the way that he sees it is that this sort of culture that they have brewed of Um, Paranoia is starting to just ruin things he once found beautiful. I thought that was one of the more powerful kind of writerly elements of it when he talks about how much he loves the Russian language and he loves literature. And that's why he got into being a linguist in the first place. And he he sees Russia as like a world inside his head. And then. His perspective on Russian life and uh, is is uh, tainted by this war that these two secret worlds are having between each other, where, he, you know, he talks about how when he watches, you know, he overhears conversations of them saying that they're going to use this this play from Russia and they're going to use it as a cultural weapon. And then he's like, well, all of a sudden, you know, all I see is the fact that it's a, it's a weapon in this secret war. It's not a piece of art, even though, you know, objectively that might be what it is. And I think the line he gets is their secret world has put out the light of the ordinary world. And our secret world is on the same tack as theirs. Um, which is a very Lacare idea uh, that mm-hmm. you know these two poisonous forces are you know uh, are kind of just locked in completely attention on each other and have long forgotten any kinds of codes or people or things that they are you know actually interested in. It has that sort of moral torment and ambiguity to it that his son is experiencing before he is eventually uh, murdered or jumped or fell by accident or committed suicide. (laughs) You know, you're, you're kind of left in the dark in a mysterious element for a good portion of the film. But then Frank has to wrestle with that.
0: Yeah. I was, I I guess one of the other things then is the kind of, you know, sort of this idea of like boss or whatever, like the banality, uh, of, of that kind of, or or I guess the stupidity or whatever, or whatever, um, that ends up feeling like the, the, the driving force of it. That is a very, uh, Lacarre thing, right? Like, the, you know, like the, there is like a, a sense of like frivolity that runs throughout a lot of his works as well. I guess this movie does, like, upon closer examination, feel like a sort of hidden Lacarre work. Uh, it does. I mean, I I, I was struck because I just I just so happened to to be watching
1: and reading some at the time. And I was like, damn, this is very I haven't read John Hale and I haven't read the novel, so I can't say it. But I was like, it seems very much like someone found something that was very much written in the vein and might have even molded it to that vein in the, you know, the adaptation process or something like that. But it's uh, in terms of a lot of the ideas that it's raising, it is it is um, surprisingly similar. Um, wasn't there an idea but, that but, was, but again you could always use more of it wasn't there an idea that you were mentioning that was pretty much
2: the same when it comes to um who the this the mole eventually is and like what his perspective on it is. I think you were.
1: Oh, his, his, like his, his climactic monologue. Yeah. Cribs, uh, an, an exact line from Tinker Taylor. The, uh, it was an aesthetic choice as much as a moral one is something uh, yeah. that the, uh, the, the mole says that at sort of in, in the big finale. So yeah, it's a very similar, um, uh, idea that is brought up in uh, Tinker Tailor when they eventually discover um, that mole. But mm-hmm. the thing that I do think is slightly different, and I do find interesting, because Lakari was always very focused, and you know Michael Kane's character technically is like a you know like someone who was you know part of government work in a way. But usually his characters are um, you know they are you know m- maneuvering within the uh, the larger plans that are taking place. They are actually someone who works in tradecraft. They aren't just like a retired businessman whose son is like you know a lowly investigator. I mean he's not even you know he like there's this is taking place on a, a, a lower rung on the power hierarchy um, which I do think um, does something interesting for Kane because I think it makes him feel even more, helpless in a lot of different ways and and i liked what noah was talking about how he feels kane especially i think feels kind of subdued um in this film and i i think a huge part of that is by making him the character that they did you know he's just this very mild tempered kind of still man who you know used to be on the periphery of the the world of uh government affairs as part of the navy but is now content to be kind of like grinding it out like the rest of us and drinking with his old friends and getting excited about a work contract like there's a part where you know he literally just gets like a, a, deal for word processors to sell to offices. And he's like so ecstatic about that. Like, that's not something that a lacare character would care about. He would just go home and drink whiskey and think about his own existential crisis. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's, there's something about, you know, this character who believes in this middle class life and this opportunity to succeed and be happy and, you know, protect this country and protect the order, uh, as they talk about multiple times throughout the film. Um, But uh, and and Kane is just really good at like the you know, as he starts to see the seams tearing, he's very good at this like teary eyed kind of angry glaring that he does and still kind of remaining passive and calm in his demeanor, but really revealing this, you know, turmoil and calculation of, you know, uh, experience that he has and and slowly becoming radicalized by the things that he um, is seeing because there is like a journalist character in here who is trying to kind of like expose this um these these sort of nefarious forces and his son obviously is more of an idealist and someone who you know was as they they call him kind of like the young kid who's just like well who is he to criticize our methods you know <laughs> yeah. how how is the, how are we the same as what we could be fighting if you know we are you know had that can't be true um you know so his his the father has been around long enough that he doesn't quite believe in resistance in the way way ways that those characters do and this movie is him slowly coming around to their perspective by seeing this culture of you know uh paranoia and panic and hysteria and death that these people are intentionally and artificially crafting essentially um to you know uh (laughs) in the end, literally just kind of save face with the Americans. Like that is literally yeah, that's... like, that's the darkest element of, of the whole thing is that they set <laughs> up this whole storyline of, we are looking for a mole who is among you. And, you know, there is some successful cross cutting where they kind of show a guy who they brought in, um, who, you know, they, they start interrogating this guy and imprisoning this guy and people who are related to him. They, you know, a guy gets pushed in front of a subway train very early on, which is like a brutal, um, bit. And, you know, they, they set up this very low level mole investigation and intentionally make all of these characters start freaking out and being, you know, uh, scared of each other. And there are scenes where, like, you know, the son starts finding the bodies of his colleagues, turning up in, like, apparent uh, suicides, and he, some of them are involved in kind of, like, armed kidnappings. And anytime someone goes to another one and says, I think something's wrong here, like, one of my friends just killed themselves and all of a sudden the instinct isn't to be like, well, let's work together and figure out what's happening. It's no go rat on that guy and go say that you think he's the mole now because he's talking like it's just it's creating an a, an atmosphere of suspicion and of um, sort of nefariousness that is a self-fulfilling prophecy at that point where then those characters start acting. Then they start being like, well, that guy's dangerous and now we need to kill him. And they start piling up all of these bodies as essentially a show. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that element of this, I found, um, very bleak and, and, and very dark.
2: Yeah. And there's, there's something to be said about how they're fully willing to take out these, People kind of on the lower end of the of the hierarchy, but the uh, chapel character, who's the actual mole that is doing the supposed um, possible damage to national security, they leave him because they can't quite assess the damage that he's done quite yet. So, you know, Mm -hmm. for, for these other people, um,
1: well, and they don't want it to look bad. They don't, they don't want it to be a scandal, right? Because the idea of it being like a high, high up member of the, you know, the British secret world, um, being someone who was the mole looks really bad and, you know, really uh, (laughs) hurts them and exposes them to their allies. So that is why they intentionally kind of work out this, uh, this this ground level hunt that ends up going really, really wrong for Frank's son, Bob, who uh, finds himself uh, being thrown off his own uh, apartment roof, essentially. But we don't know that for a good portion of the film as Frank kind of investigates this. This was one of the elements I thought was kind of interesting was how much they relegate the and I I see kind of why they do it. Um but they they relegate a lot of this action to off screen yeah so that there is kind of like this mysterious element that frank has to be a part of like when he's informed of his son's yeah. death it, it, they you know it's it's something that we had no idea had happened until it you know comes up and 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 hits him and they're just like we've got some bad news for you and kane gets to do the thousand yard teary stare yeah. while driving and it was only we got some very bad news to-
0: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, and it's also I think the uh, part of what sort of is interesting there, right? Is you know to give like another example, um, the Netflix show Wormwood or it's a series by Errol Morris called Wormwood, fantastic series. Right. I um, I'm only bringing it up. I haven't seen it just because I know that most other people have, but it's a way of referencing the story of uh, Frank Weisner, who or not Frank mm-hmm. Weisner, um, uh, the other Frank Olson, I think. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, Frank Olsen. Always got to, got So, you know, one concerning the story of Frank Olson, the CIA official who, you know, may or may not have been thrown from a window uh, in New York City. Uh, and, and, you know, there's a, like, you know, you could, I mean, it's a common way to die necessarily, but I do think that, you know, part of one of the things that this movie is very good at just, like, evoking, like, you know, trope after trope after trope, of the you know spy thriller uh you know like like world uh not just you know ripped from you know like like film canon but also you know quite literally from history in real life which was then you know pretty recent history comparatively speaking
1: yeah i mean like that's that's definitely like the way that this was written i thought was like the strongest element um of this and kane's performance i would argue yeah those are i think i think he finds a lot of depth in this um in this role um, and I mean like one of my favorite scenes for example which I think just has so much pain and, and history to it that I, I got really kind of I was very moved by and also it's just a very dark kind of like tense scene um, is the scene where he suspects that his old Navy buddy was involved because he, he starts investigating the, you know, this mysterious death of his son because they everyone rules it a uh, accident or a possible suicide. But he know, he thinks that both of those are bullshit and he's suspicious and he and starts looking some of into his it colleagues
2: being, won't even discuss it. And which also leads him to be much more suspicious as well
1: yeah and yeah and also you know all of the scenes leading up to it where his son was like getting deeper and deeper and he's like I'm <laughs> yeah. gonna talk to this turtle. and you know I, I found this thing you know I all my movie heroes are American and you know the white guy in the white hat saves the day and I'm gonna keep digging and looking into these people and he's like I don't know if you should do that son you should you know you, you might get yourself in trouble and then yeah then he's dead Um, <laughs> so he starts looking into that and there's a scene kind of like later in the film where he suspects finally that his old Navy buddy who he really trusted and trusted like, you know, outside the actual, um, work that they did for the government. And he finds out that he was actually used, uh, to get into his son's apartment, um, because he you know, he was a a close family friend and, you know, it was a way that they could do it without causing a huge uh, kerfuffle, essentially. And when he wants to basically confirm that and find that out from him, there's this amazing scene where they take a scene from earlier in the film where him and his buddy are both drinking at a pub, just, you know, talking about his job, talking about, you know, the the death of his wife and how his son is doing and, you know, having very personal conversation He recreates that scenario at the Navy man's apartment And has drinks with him and basically gets into like a little mini drinking contest with him. where then the film, the filmmaking lets you in on, you know, he's actually drinking water and he keeps getting his buddy to down more and more vodka. He's trying to get him insanely drunk so that he will actually be honest and truthful and talk to him like he would if they were best friends Mm -hmm. and not talk to him as if he was, you know, a colleague who was covering something up and involved in the government and just watching Michael Caine like very clearly be personable and talk to this guy like a, a his, having a history of friendship with him and warmness with this guy but also on a mission to get this guy to tell him what he has done and uh, like that that scene I found especially on Kane's part just th- a lot of complicated things happening on his face mm-hmm. as you know he clearly has affection for this man he has a history with this man but also you know he knows that he is also a pawn in a really really dark piece of machinery that has killed his son and he needs to know that and he needs to get the catharsis out of that and yeah Cain uh, moves from being incredibly incredibly sad to you know, funny and having a good time with him to being incredibly angry and, you know, slapping him around a little bit too, like his old gangster (laughs) roles a little bit as well. And yeah, that's a, that was uh, an example of just like a scene I found very, very um, interesting and dramatic because I would say a lot of this film and in ways that are both good and ways that I, I did find a little stiff. It's very (laughs) um, it does have kind of like a TV movie workman quality. So like very economical framing, very simple cuts and dissolve. Mm-hmm. A Very few moments of psychological subjectivity. It's a lot more based in these characters, you know, kind of sitting around and talking and delivering the very well-written um, characterizations and kind of plotting that they've come up with. But I, I did find and, and also, you know, one could argue that that, you know, mundanity is also part of the point in a lot of Carey stories as well. But um, I did I did find it, um, you know, not quite as. Intensely uh, exciting or thrilling in a lot of um, uh, ways that I do find, say, like Paculas, um, just in terms of the way oh, that it was totally. filmed. No, I think in terms know, of yeah, the way that yeah, it was totally. written and performed, it's very, very I, uh, strong. But I, I think that Langton has just more of a kind of very simple, competent approach to it.
0: Yeah, yeah he's I, he's I, not like smearing the walls with anything. There, it's real. It's real. I think workman like you said, is a very good word for it.
2: Yeah, I think. Um, There's definitely moments where I feel, you know, a little bit of more stylized camera work would would work. But there there are some really cold moments that work with uh, his more um, kind of like stiff approach, I guess, if you want to say like I really thought just the the coldness of when he sees his son laying on the, the bed dead when he's like confirming that it's his son yeah just how it's it's just so mundane and and short no one really says anything he just kind of like nods cries kisses his son on the forehead and then moves well and this
0: this is this is where it's the power of Michael Caine I think because it's like Mm. you and and this is you know and this is to the credit then of the direction right that it is that understated because it's like you know you're not it's not like they don't make it this heightened crazy thing like you know contrast it with just like to give another like you know body corpse like father son scene although the roles are reversed Patrick Melrose from the Showtime production like that's you know that is just like crazy maximalist an interpretation of that kind of encounter as you could imagine and this on the other hand you know is like it understands that the point of this is like you're going to see Michael Caine cry now Uh, you're going to see Michael Caine shed tears Uh, you know and Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think I think also,
1: you know, it gets by on a lot of some of the writerly detail of it too. Like there is like really nice sort of written in moments, like for example when Cain uh, after the scene that you were talking about where he goes and he, you know, confirms that it's his son, there's like this very there's these very um nice moments like and maybe not even nice, uh, nicely included, but not nice for the character <laughs> yeah. where he, um, like they hand him all of his son's belongings and it's in like a garbage bag and he just looks at it and he's just like, this is all that my son is now. And he, and he just goes, it's very light. And he's like, "Why wow, you couldn't have put it in like a nice box or something like, you know, like what is it? Like, why do you, yeah. why do you treat me like, like this? And it continues onto the scene that I think you were referring to earlier, Jamie, where he, um, you know, the, he, he asks, uh, the, uh, what is, what is, what is her name? She, she is, is uh, like making the bed at at the, at her, his son's apartment. And it's one of, I think it's, I think it's the section leader Rose. Here it is. Yeah. It's the section leader Rose, who is one of his son's colleagues. And he's trying to talk with her about, you know, like, thank you for like tidying up, up the room. And she just is basically like, yeah, I can't talk to you. Or anything to do with Bob. We are ordered Mm -hmm. not to talk to the press or relatives or basically anyone. He's like, you can't talk to a father about his dead son. Like, you can't say anything comforting to me and I, Kane delivering lines like why is it against national interest to say that you like liked my son or that he was a decent person or you know like what it like yeah. what is this weird it's, you know sort of oh. bureaucratic angle to all of this that's just completely dehumanizing and again Kane really really delivers that stuff and that scene actually also has one of my favorite moments that I think actually is very psychologically subjective. And I think is fantastic, which is when he goes on the roof, one, when he goes on the roof and he looks down and he actually does get a brief sort of like fractured in edit of his son imagining his son hitting the pavement, mm-hmm. um, which is like obviously a really sad moment but also those insane dutch angle moments as he when observes he uh yeah when he walks in and he's just like yeah. my son's room is wrong like it's perfectly clean yeah that the that, that made. scene it's like so
0: that scene was done so well like it's a great it's one of my favorite scenes i, I will say that that's one of the things where it's like you know if you're like a great sp- you know like a great spy thriller in a lot of ways can be like a great detective novel um, in, in mm-hmm. not in, in or a great like a uh, uh, detective roman um, I, I i sort of point to like Jean-Patrick Manchette the novelist as to like the like like sort of like the apex of how those tales can be kind of uh like like uh kind of crafted immaculately and perfectly and, and done to perfection and in this instance, you know, I think that lends itself really perfectly to that. Again, that kind of, like, TV pacing where you're unraveling something. And although the emotional tension never and, – and, and the visual splendor is never overwhelming. Like, you're not, like – you know, you could really, like – I would not say that you should watch this on your laptop, but it's okay. Like, the, it's it's <laughs> not, like, it, you know, there – there. It, this isn't like let me put it this way. It's no – uh it's no, uh, fuck what's, uh, Eternals, you know, it's no Avengers, <laughs> game, you know, uh, you know, the, the, where you got to get out the, like, you know, uh, 35 millimeter and stuff.
1: Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. No, I, I really love, um, that moment specifically too, because I actually went back and, ch- and checked it too. It's very well done in the production design and everything too, but like his room is totally fucking wrong. And that just freaks him out that again, it's like, it's yeah, an impersonal thing. Son. It's like, this is. Yeah, this is not my son's room. And they're trying to tell me that what he committed suicide or he possibly fell. And this is how he left his room. He hasn't cleaned his room in like 20 years.
2: I also like the little hint. His books aren't
1: even organized on the shelf correctly. Like it's nuts.
2: Right. And when she's when he's talking to Rose, I think when he says thank you for cleaning up the room, she actually tells him straight up that it wasn't her. And that's his first kind of red flag like well then who would have done it because it surely isn't Bob um, and so I like yeah. that and that's I think that's also what kind of initially scares her is that he's like well that seems suspicious and then something you know clicks in her brain and she's like well I can't talk about him at all I I, I can't say anything I have to move on um, so yeah I did I did like that little yeah. Well, and and then,
1: and then and then he finds the newspaper clippings in his son's jacket that show that you know mm-hmm. this this um, older woman with a daughter that he that Bob was interested in seeing. Um, she uh, her husband is uh, the one who they find having committed suicide in the garage, and find out that he was actually a colleague of the convicted spy from the opening of the film, the one that they're trying to say was the ten year mole, and uh, the other clipping is about. Um, the uh, convicted mole's friend who was the one who quote unquote fell under a train, which is not exactly the way that we saw it. So <laughs> no. th- these, these things that Bob was looking into, he decides to kind of continue his mission to kind of get to, um, the bottom of this. And, and the rest of it does kind of turn into a little bit of a, you know, a, a detective story where he starts getting, t- you know, information out of, um, out of Cynthia, the, the girlfriend of Bob, he starts getting interested. Uh, he starts talking to, um, a, a reporter? Uh, a journalist. Yeah, a reporter who was interested in in talking to Bob. And the reporter, really- you know, he, he, he gets one of my favorite uh, lines in this where he's trying to explain to and trying to essentially, in dialogue, radicalize Michael Caine's Frank because he's like <laughs> – right. because Michael Caine can't understand how this thing that he partially committed so much of his own life to, he's like, I don't understand how these three murders – come back to the government why does the government do these things like what's the logic like explain this to me Mm -hmm. and the reporter basically just points to watergate and saying that not the actual contents of the scandal itself but the idea that something could be uncovered like that freaks them out more than anything else and it just made an already you know uh paranoid group of people whose professional uh, job is telling lies. Even more paranoid and I think he, he calls them like mental patients. They are in a flight from reality and they have no reason not to overreact. They are incapable of distinguishing between dissent and treason uh, as any. Both are just like a threat to their order essentially because Frank is sitting here going like look I'm like a middle class liberal Brit. Like I don't want to tear down a system
0: or be part of a revolution i just or, want to find out you know, what I don't, happened to my son <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah yeah um i mean that's but, like listen it's it's i i think that it's you know the the whistleblower represents like uh the convergence of two great subjects of 20th century cinema uh the cold war and um they killed my boy <laughs> right um but yeah, so
1: Kane, over the course of the film, does eventually find out. And I do love that he eventually finds out in this scene that is um, as, what I can only describe as he gets taken to the British Eyes Wide Shut house. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Where definitely. in like the middle of a fancy lad dinner party, they take him, uh, you know, they kind of take a break from it to in all their party gear to essentially explain that his son's uh, tragic death was literally just to cover up what was a covert like double crossing plan to mislead the Americans uh, to the extent of the depth of kind of like the Russian intelligence operatives inside their operations Um, in, in hope that they, you know, could continue being allies with the CIA and get, you know, uh, be have access to their tools and their equipment and everything like that. And, you know, like this really uh, upsets Frank, for obvious reasons, one, because they are straight up telling you, like, look, there's nothing you can do about this. You can't come forward about this. No one will believe you. We will discredit you. Nothing is going to happen from this. And We've, we'll go out know, your t- family they, or. Uh, at
2: yeah. Least they explain family.
1: it very mundanely that they're just like, you know, this is the way that it is. I don't understand why you're so confused or upset about this. Like, this is just sorry. It's sorry. Your son died. You know what? A, you <laughs> yeah. know, we're 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 protecting Things something bigger. Yeah. Yeah. We're protecting something bigger than your and then this your son here they're well and, and and
2: dining the american cia i think in the other room as well
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and again it all comes back to like they created this thing they created you know they they kill a guy who they think is a mole but then they create an atmosphere of distrust you know, when people in the office, uh, you know, start to act on and start to then eliminate each other. And they essentially start creating traitors out of all of these suspicious circumstances and then killing them and then having to cover up those deaths. It's like, it turns into like this weird Hydra situation where they just keep generating (laughs) more witnesses and people who are confused and scared. And then, you know, who, who react to that and then kill them in order to preserve as they, the quote unquote sort of, um, order. And yeah, this the, the fact that this is how his country is run is something that, you know, is is very, very disturbing to him. And I think Kane, once again, getting all the torment and vulnerability out of, you know, feeling genuinely, very personally betrayed and radicalized by this thing he patriotically used to believe in, but is now seeing as like this just pointless death machine that it is. And that uh, climax I did find um, uh, quite, quite striking in terms of the way that it's again written and performed yeah yeah but uh if we are pivoting maybe towards the um reductive rating round on the whistleblower uh this one for me i i kind of struggled with it a bit it's kind of in the uh the very high three to kind of like soft four territory for me i i did think that it was very very Strong and I kind of want to give it another shot because yeah. I think that Kane is doing something really special here in terms of the way that he is again making you feel your way yeah, through I- this character and and showing again a sort of intimate domestic kind of ground level view of this thing that you you know are frequently you see from Lacare from a, a little bit more I mean not that you don't see it from like a confused perspective in his films but you you know you do see it from a little bit more of a position of of power as those characters kind of wander those really ugly spaces. Pieces. Um, but the, the thing kind of holding me back just a little bit was just some of the, 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 style of it. Because again, I don't think that it's totally off base for someone who is, you know, very clearly, you know, referencing or homaging in some ways, Le Carre. um, his, um, you know his his style even in his writing and in other adaptations adheres more to kind of mundane ugliness rather than any you know super exciting action so you could definitely make that argument uh Mm. but i do find that the best adaptations of him that i've seen like spy who came in from the cold or even the uh tinker Tailor soldier spy that came out i think in 2011 uh they do have a really tense psychological existentialism um To them that I find, you know, uh, elevates some of the, you know, more sit down and talk kind of elements that a lot of these have. But again, very well written plot and Kane brings some depth um, to that character. Just didn't quite hit me as hard as like all the President's Men or Tinker Taylor um, or even the Martin Ritt spy who came in from the cold, which I think has like one of the bleakest gut punch endings of the 60s with (laughs) that beautiful shot of the corpses on the fence line and everything like that. Um, But you know, still, um, you know, uh, very, very, um, strong for sure.
2: Yeah. I, uh, I, i think I'm in the same, the same boat. I, I really did like it. I'm going to revisit this. I think Kane is a powerhouse in this movie. Um, his subtlety with just the, the more shattering truth that he, that he discovers is, is really, really good. There's never really a huge scene of him outbursting or anything it just seems like he gets just sadder and sadder and more defeated Oh, which as, is so which is so good I, I agree yeah.
0: that's why I give it like a 4 out of 5 for, for that big reason I think like elevates mm-hmm. it basically doesn't fall in it's so easy it's like a cliche right that like yeah. somebody goes on a rampage you expect Mike- michael kane rampages all the time no rampage <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah more stars yeah. get carter mode you know exactly
2: yeah and just like him walking off at, at the last shot of him like after saying you know i just yeah, want going to go that remembrance England day ceremony again and you know walking away yeah. from the memorial just in this empty street after the parade it's just it's heartbreaking um so yeah i i, I think uh I think I guess some of the style maybe held me back, but I want to revisit it more focused on the just the character. And I also like that they spent a lot of time with, the son um, and Kane uh, kind of showing their relationship before. It's like half
1: the movie before even the hits the premise of the kid being killed. Yeah. Yeah, You really get into that relationship. I mean, you know, which
0: is again, like, you know, to all you uh, aspiring filmmakers and writers out there, that was, as I was watching it, I have looking at my notes from it on my phone. Uh, (laughs) I think I wrote it in some annoying pedantic way like that, where I was like, uh, like, just like like this is like it's just it, it's like yes like it just makes you feel like invested and in give a shit about this. Whereas in like mm-hmm. you know in, in in it so often it feels like so expended. Whereas here it's like both it helps explicate the plot that unravels in the in the in the latter two thirds of the movie, and it's also like it makes you give a shit about like this you know like like about Michael Caine. It's like it 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 allows you to believe that Michael Caine possesses sadness, true sadness.
1: Yeah. yeah and then it, and then w- even watching him like pointedly interrogate people through that emotional you know sort of experience he's going through too is is really strong like doing the detective stuff that he's doing and the final confrontation he gets with the mole where he makes him write the big confession note out where in big capital letters he's like capitalism is doomed his note reads and stuff and he <laughs> you know gets into a little uh, gun altercation with him where it's just this very old man pulls a gun on him and you know he just shoves it back into to his chest and it goes off, and he goes back to his Remembrance Day march. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that'll I think wrap it up for the whistleblower. We're gonna be right back and we're gonna be talking about the mighty Quinn. It's staying alive,
0: bring in Maui. There's a man out there looking for you who wants you dead, and I'm glad you got here first. The best thing we can do is stay out of the way. Denzel Washington is police chief Quinn. I'm in. Robert Townsend is Moby. When there's trouble in paradise, you ain't seen nothing like the Mighty Quinn.
1: All right, we are back and we are talking about the Mighty Quinn, the 1989 uh, American, uh, sort of like. uh, this one was a genre bender in comparison to the whistleblower. <laughs> yeah. This th- th- this one had more of like a noir conspiracy kind of buddy caper quality uh, There's to it a little of bit. of
2: comedy as well. Like like yeah. the way that, um, like, uh, is it Mo- Moby? I think is his name. Moby. Or the way that he's mm. Moby. The way Moby. that he's presented is is pretty comical a lot of the time. Honestly, he's getting into like. Yeah, and it's based on the nineteen.
1: It's based on the 1971 uh, detective novel Finding Mobby by an author named Albert uh, Carr. And yeah, so it's interesting that he kind of made the main character, this this Quinn character. Um, And it stars Denzel Washington, obviously, as the titular Mighty Quinn, as well as uh, Robert Townsend, James Fox and uh, Mimi Rogers and M. Emmett. Walsh. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one was interesting because it was I, I didn't have to do a whole lot of research on this director because he didn't really do a whole lot. His name is Carl uh, Schenkel and he's a Swiss film director whose uh, career is very much a string of very low rent 80s and 90s horror um, and <laughs> nice. a little bit of crime, a little bit of sci-fi, a little bit of thrillers in there but he seems most well known for a movie with Christopher Lambert uh, called Night Moves which is uh, not not the 70s crime film about like 90s knight but like the the knight like the warrior and it's about a serial killer who's like targeting a grandmaster chess tournament or something <laughs> like a so awesome. like a chess night um, i gotta see that but he but he does have a background in european commercials which i will say in comparison oh, yeah. to the whistleblower gives this a very stylish like pop well, you music know, kind and, of
0: glow and oversaturated 80s and, and i think you know to, to that point so uh when I when I look back at movies like this, I tend to look to see, uh, if it's old enough, I look to see what Pauline Kael said about it, and then if it's more recent, I look to see uh, what Robert Roger Ebert said about it. Roger Ebert, for what it's worth, loved The Whistleblower, and um, in, in talking about Denzel Washington's performance here, quote, in an effortless way that reminds me of Robert Mitchum, Michael Caine or Sean Connery mm-hmm, eh? in the best of the Bond yeah, pictures, there's a connection. He is able to be tough and gentle at the same time, able to play a hero, and yet not take himself too seriously. Whereas, you know, admittedly in The Whistleblower, Michael Caine takes himself very seriously. But no, it's true. This movie, like, <laughs> there's a lot of, like, verve and charm to it. But it also does deal with, like, you know, it's a it's a mystery movie, and Denzel plays an island, you know, like, cop, but he is, you know, it is also like kind of technically an international cold war political thriller, um, <laughs> yep. involved yeah. in international money laundering and political, you know, transnational political corruption. And it comes out in the late 1980s and it was distributed by the way, by a mini major, by, by MGM. Um, you know, and the, uh, to me, this is—it's a very, like, it's a very strange movie. I don't understand how it oh, got yeah. made, and and why it's as good as it is, because it's so, yeah. Like, you know, it, it, the, you think it'd clash
2: with itself more with the tones
0: and just what it's
2: dealing with. It's dealing with some really heavy stuff, but then it it, it has the weird like relationship with, um, with uh, Denzel and 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 Mabi, and it, it really focuses on like the community with a lot of music and band stuff. Um, there's just mm. there's just a, a ton of tonal changes that I think. Well, that ended up being something worked.
1: I really. Liked about it yeah, because um, there's you know because like based on who wrote this film, um, which is it it, it was uh, adapted by Hampton Fancher, who's whose only other credit at the time was Blade Runner, um, and the book was written by an economist uh, turned who was a actually a consultant for President Roosevelt and Truman, and mostly mostly wrote books on business and yes, history, including yes. some left leaning stuff about Cold War, Red Scare, hysteria, and stuff. But apparently wrote. some fiction on the side and this was actually published after his death in 1971 and it is a Caribbean sort of island set neo-noir that's been adapted here into this very commercial sweaty sunny little sort of spy caper buddy action comedy kind of thing and, and, that and, and, I, and i'll I, say I, like up
0: front like disregard like wikipedia claims that this is in jamaica not true like they, they do a pretty good job in the movie of making it like in the novel that it's adapted from like a uh, an island of indeterminate like you know it's it's a black island it's an op- island largely populated by black people in the caribbean um, but it which is meant yes. to like give it some liberty in terms of storytelling uh, with what it wants to do rather than having to be bound to, to reality. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, and I think people get confused too because a lot
1: of the location work was in correct, Jamaica. Correct, I think correct. they shot a good portion of the film in Jamaica. So that kind of throws people off a little bit. But yes, they do intentionally uh, try to make it a little bit more um, broad and kind of vague in that department, which I think is is smart simply because obviously it lets them get away with you know being a little bit more specific with some of the political things that they might otherwise not want to touch as, as much if they were making this, uh, you know, referencing real ge- geopolitical places, but at the same time, it also uh, spends a lot of the movie and its time just simply soaking up the community and yeah. the, you know, like it has these like tropical reggae kind of vibes to it, this like lush location work that they're doing. It, even starts it has with a tone that has this Yeah. And it has this tone that kind of has like a carefree childhood playfulness to it. Like it wants to get you into this island life and people who have grown up here and people who care about each other and are passionate and kind of lived in. And it wants to give you this as like this is a counterpoint to the outside forces. Like this is why you would want to live here to get away from the bloody colonial forces that are trying to make their way in and kind of trying to corrupt it. In a way, which is what Denzel has to know, because Denzel is someone who operates in both worlds. And I think that that's something that's really interesting is that it's established that as this character, um, Quinn, who is the uh, chief of police. On this island. Um, he is someone who grew up. Everyone knows who he is. They even sing a song for him, which is very hilariously a, um, a cover of the Bob Dylan song, The Mighty Quinn. Uh, they just do kind of like a reggae updated and they update some of the lyrics to be about, you know, specific people that he knows and everything like that. But he, he has a very good relationship with everyone there. He's very charming. He smiles a lot, even when, you know, he's stopping them from hurting each other and he's like stopping criminals. He's like like doing these very cartoonish, like roundhouse kick, like sweeps <laughs> yeah. and stuff like that, and being like, "Now you behave yourselves," and you know, like it, it's very sweet in a way. Well, and it it's, juxtap- and it's people-
0: juxtaposed by the way against, like to me, and this is what's so exciting is that it's like he, you know, he is the, you know, like sort of uh, like he is of the people, right? Like you know, like polices them, but you know, as you as you guys talked about, like he he he's mediating that. Uh, with like these higher all white powers and it is these conflicts between. And so this is the, you know, if the whistleblower, it comes out in theaters or, you know, or it's released initially in in, in November, 1986, around when Iran Contra happens, you know, uh, uh, which I definitely misdescribed it before because it was, the arms were diverted to go to the Contras, but you know what? Um you live and you learn and you don't try to explain it on the go without having written it down on a piece of paper before you. This is uh podcasting <laughs> advice for people in the future. I couldn't have done it better. Um, it's a very complicated situation. It's a very you know, a lot of ins, a lot of outs, a lot of what have you's. Um, <laughs> In any event, uh, so uh, you know, in this case though, it's like okay, you know, whistleblower is like you know, sort of about like the pain and the vibes and the gutting out of the country. This is you know, change the aperture in 1980, uh, you know, Reagan or in 1983, you know, Reagan invades Granada, uh, you know, Manuel Noriega in Panama, his numbers up, etc. The Caribbean and Central America. Um, you know, I mean, Mexican Condor uh, is going on at this time as part of the war on drugs. Like there is like a you know th- this is a a hot zone to use the phrase of the Cold War historian uh, Gerald Horn and you know what's very interesting to me is that you know during the 1980s you know a lot of the scandals of that time are can be viewed as sort of like intra ruling class conflict like different segments and you know rival sectors of the ruling class you know different you know regional blocks or whatever in the US uh, you know, are competing against one another and so on. And that includes in Colonial Ventures. Uh, and so when it comes to this island, you now have like the basis for like this, you know, conflict that lives adjacent to this kind of like friendly comic reality that you're describing. And it's, yep. and, and I think to some extent that, you know, it's, it's, you know, you talked about how this guy was, you made, you know, European made uh, videos, uh, made music videos, etc. I do think that this is like a, a difficult movie for like an American to make because it really is like, it's a movie that doesn't have a ton of Americans in it like uh, mm-hmm. but it's really about like the planta- like like somebody who looks at America and, and you know like many Europeans do and they're like oh yeah that's a plantation country like they like you know like they, yeah. they had slaves <laughs> until pretty recently uh, which is true yeah. and so that's to me is like you know sort of like the 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 big like uh, epic kind of subtext to this that is extremely exciting to me And that it does, and, you know, because Denzel's in it, too, and, like, you know, he is, at this moment in particular, like glory's right around this time, right? Like, I mean, to me, he is just, like, he is Civil War cinema incarnate, you know? Yeah, Cry
1: Freedom came out before this, which he was nominated for the Oscar, and then Glory, I think, came out the same year, which he was also nominated for. So this kind of came out sandwiched in between two Oscar-nominated star-making turns for and, Denzel. And, and, and I would honestly argue, having seen those, that um, this is probably more indicative of where his career as a star would eventually go. Mm-hmm, like obviously, yeah. he would do things like Malcolm X, and you know, he would do some great, you know, some great stuff in the more serious roles. But the
0: amount of You know, just Frank uh, Lucas is in this role, you know, like you see a lot (laughs) of like you see a lot of like his just like straight up like charm and like. You know, there's a lot of like strange emotional range in this, but like, but
1: also tough and sensitive yes. and just cool and it like all at the same time. Because again, like not he's cool not in like the cold way that like noir and spy movie heroes of of old frequently were. Like there's no, there's like, a warmth to him. And
2: excited about They're, things, and
1: he's so sweaty. And he's, oh my god, everybody's so and sweaty and he's, he's, he's eyeing up every woman in sight. Yeah, like, like he's I giving love, a seductive performance. i <laughs> love
2: the the shot where he's just like the camera kind of following him along as he's flirting with his estranged wife and he says something like you got a license for that and he's talking about her ass and stuff like that it's just it's just and then he starts to follow her and kind of sing to her and try to get her attention again and it's just like you can tell that even her as the character has been lost uh, in his charisma before just as quinn himself but you know denzel just brings his specific charm to every character and yeah i just i loved that
0: sequence in particular oh and yeah and and Okay. Oh, well, one other thing that I think is, you know, really like kind of uh, you know, special and and interesting to me about this whole like, you know, the whole setup or whatever is that this is a very, you know, this is a movie that like takes, you know, kind of seriously the idea at least to me of, you know, what like uh, you know, how how like autonomy uh, like, gets represented on screen of, like, you know, any any group of, like, you know, oppressed or subjected people, right? And you get, like, a pretty limited wor- uh, world presented in the context of this movie, because it's a, it's a mystery and everything. But, you know, in part because, you know, it has Denzel's charisma and everything attached to it. Um, I really, really do love and appreciate the, like, you know, uh, to me it's just this kind of, like, ex- you know, the, the exciting good humor of it. Um, in particular, mm-hmm. like some of these like crazy acrobatics or the song preaching that you're describing, like there's a way to do that that would be like you know a tragic, corny kind of Romeo and Juliet sort of way. You know, I'm thinking Bos Lerman, not not Shakespeare. Uh, uh, you know, <laughs> but but instead it's like it's no, it, it it's like it's something that makes like the what ends up being like this extremely bitter truth about like the manipulations of you know of of, of, of like you know white men in the north of 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 of, uh, you know, the United States and, and you know, the, the, the CIA, uh, it, it makes, you know, it 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 makes that conflict not just feel, you know, like, and I, and I say this, you know, as somebody who sort of feels, I guess, kind of steeped in it, it makes it feel not just like a succession of, like, you know, uh, guys in suits doing crimes from a windowless room. Um, like, I do mm-hmm. think that this is, like, a kind of movie that actually has a, quite a fucking bit to say, or at least, at least show in terms of, you know, uh, you know other sides of the story that aren't just like you know yet another movie about Barry Seal or another you know drug smuggler or narco trafficker
1: yeah, I mean, like having this very beautiful, again, sort of um, quality and playfulness with the island life and, and seeing so much sort of passion and joy. And there, I mean, there are full on musical sequences in this that are all fantastic yep. um, that it really gets you swept up in this to then kind of shock you when you get into the murder and the mysterious elements of this where the wealthiest man on the island, this man named Donald Pater who uh, does work in, as they say, offshore corporations, numbered accounts, holding companies, uh, stomping out communism in Latin America. These are all the trades that he operates in. And he f- they find him murdered in his jacuzzi, uh, decapitated. And it is like a pretty gruesome thing where like the jacuzzi is filled with blood and they find him. And immediately, though, it's uh, suspicious because they don't want an autopsy for the body both the governor and the guy who runs the resort that the wealthy man was killed in that the you know all the tourists hang out in who aren't part of the island life they don't want an autopsy or any investigation or probing of potential witnesses from Denzel which is you know very much weirds him out he's just like i'm just doing standard like homicide practices like i send <laughs> yeah. the body to the hospital like and they're like freaking out at him being like no we know who did it it's your best friend it's moby um and you know, uh, Mobby is interesting because he is, you know, he's a childhood friend of his, but someone who like never learned to climb the ranks like he did, because, you know, like people like the governor, who I think he at one point references used to be like a like a what? a Like a chicken farmer or something like that. Denzel even does like little uh, he does little chicken wings at one point, just a little <laughs> at him and stuff. Um, but, you know, he he went to school in the US and I think it's implied that he was like FBI trained before coming back. So there's this quality of like, you know, you kind of have to subscribe to this system to climb it a little bit. And Moby is like a good person um, and just never did. But as a result, you know, he's constantly. On the kind of on his back a little bit, he's constantly trying to survive. Like when we first meet him, he's speeding along, having stolen the money that we're going to be looking for for the rest of the film. But and when he's hanging around, you know, he's challenging people to drinking contests and, you know, running from the cops. And, you know, like his entire life is just it's fun and it's carefree in a way. And it's filled with so much life, but it's very much something that is, you know, uh, not deemed Uh, charming by anyone other than basically the local villagers. Like, the actual institutions do not like this character and basically are using this situation in order to take him down, because they are like, yeah, that's the guy who did it, we would kind of want to get rid of this guy. And it ends up revealing an entire scandal involving you know, like, the wealthy businessman uh, having essentially been like sleeping with native girls and getting them pregnant and you know when they come back for the money it turns out that he's basically like no fuck you and fuck your old mom and you know (laughs) know, like all of the just nasty shit and uh, over the course of the film he does eventually um, learn that you know these people were just abusing the island and the people and that was what exactly what happened was that they actually killed him for revenge and they use like a poisonous snake in order to do it. And I love the story he tells too about the snakes, which was that they were actually imported to the island to um dissuade slaves from running away because the plantation owners didn't want the slaves running away but what the white plantation owners didn't realize is that the snakes can't tell black from white is how he describes it and so they started biting the slavers as well and so it's it has there's a little bit of a a little bit of a poetic angle to I it also the fact like that, that he the millionaire was killed by the snakes and the snakes included in the climax too which oh is yeah so and i cli- also yeah.
2: like that he, that they, he includes, uh, that they decided to bring in mongoose, but didn't know that they were nocturnal and the snakes were, uh, they, they would, um, be awake during the Yeah, they daytime, operate at different times. So they couldn't yeah. actually <laughs> take each other out. So it was just an even bigger screw up. I just, I like that it, uh, it, it kept sa- just showing how dumb the Americans were being. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then they also introduce what I think is awesome, which is the the force that hilariously symbolizes uh, these uh, colonial forces because you obviously the you CIA. have the, you know, yeah, the CIA guy who is played <laughs> by legendary character actor M. Emmett Walsh, who you talked oh, yeah. about on um, Blood Simple, especially with the Coen's, played but also he was also in Blade Runner to, too. to
2: the Blood Simple guy, actually kind of. Oh, he yeah. He's got this like initially. Kind, kind of charming But just kind of
1: gross um, But then as- Well he's kind of just like The fat American doofus And he's yeah. like a tourist And well, he's but, taking but he's photos also And that's like, how he's introduced He's like
0: He, he really does have Like a, a true air of menace though Like he's He's a doofus, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. but, like, well, Yeah, well, that's what's yeah, interesting.
1: Like, like they, they introduce him that way as, like, here here's a European's idea of what a stupid, fat American tourist is like, and then he's revealed to be his blood-simple, like, cold-blooded well, psycho. Well, I mean, that's, and that's, that, to me, like, is the killer. thing, you
0: know, is that, like, that's the power. Like, that that's also what makes this movie good, is that, like, you know, it doesn't, like, you know... It's not you know in part because it's it's clear who it's rooting who the, who, who you know who the movie's rooting for in a sense w- one thing I did want to add that i i I thought was like really like you know quite special and interesting was um choosing to integrate like the iran contra style storyline with like the funding anti communists um as a you know like a plot line an example of the illegality going on in the island um and then also combining it by, like, having it coexist also with, like, you know, this, like, you know, what is pretty clearly, like, you know, adapted as, like, you know, kind of, like, slave rape parable. Um, and putting mm-hmm. these things in, like, the same story, on, like, on the same continuum of a kind of, you know, neocolonial pain um, is pretty fucking cool. And also, like, 1989, not that long ago, um, Mm -hmm. You know, like I I think that there have been some movies since that do have like a, you know, achieve a similar kind of level of like, you know, outright political commentary while also, you know, frankly, like achieving something like, you know, a pretty formal, formally special thing with with this, like, you know, balance of like the comic and the, you know, pretty sober minded.
1: Mm hmm yeah I mean like this is a film where you get like a scene where M.M. Walsh is in like a seedy neon red motel where he shoots you know like one of the uh, he shoots this guy Patina who's like one of the guy who was supposed to intercept the money for them as you know for the Americans and it builds up to it musically by having him like stomp on his back and put the gun to his head and tilt up as he fires so that the blood hits his face and everything like it's pretty violent and then it'll go to a scene where like Denzel is trying to flirt with like the resort Uh, the resort resort manager's wife who is essentially kind of like this femme fatale kind of presence in the film who he is you know trying to resist in a way Um, but Denzel just, you know, in his, you know, big red Hawaiian shirt and jeans talking about like Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd and just, you know, very, (laughs) you know, there's lots of romantic tension kind of like in the air with this like white, wealthy, kind of like abused, uh, woman who has this very kind of old school, noir quality to her. And then it'll move into a scene where like he walks into the club, sits down at the piano with, you know, all of the villagers and just rip out a cover of like a Taj Mahal, like a blues banger, uh, cakewalking to town so you know like this is the way that this movie operates and i think that it's surprisingly not as messy as you would think by like describing that it is like like it, it it has a pretty sustained vibe to it if not necessarily you know necessarily in terms of tone and i thought that how this movie related to um one that we've covered with denzel previously was really strong um, devil in a blue dress uh, Carl Franklin, oh yeah, uh, which is a really, really excellent um, sort of like '90s take on you know like a like 40-set noir and you know dealing with you know how these characters kind of like try to live and love and start a community and you know how proud he is of just owning a house in Devil in a Blue Dress as the kind of like the blue-collar uh, detective or blue-collar uh, war veteran who eventually becomes a private investigator because none of the white private investigators want to navigate the African-American South Central L.A. community. So there is something uh, that this kind of shares with that and I thought that that would make a good pairing for anyone who hasn't seen Devil in a Blue Dress yet. This was definitely something I thought about uh, while Mm. watching this though this gets I will say uh, a lot Sillier by the end like the fact that you have Emmett Walsh dripped out in like Miami Vice clothes wielding an Uzi and helicopters exploding and stuff like it like this gets uh,
2: kills uh, a uh, the village witch um, in a wheelchair by putting a broomstick in the chairs and then setting her house on fire.
1: So it's yeah, and the tracking shot the of Denzel like arriving with like the house on fire and everything like yeah, it's it's very like it's string it has like that 80s over the top kind of action quality that it eventually gets to. but what what is crazy is that it does that while also having like hinting at all of these you know very serious political themes and you know having some very um, you know impassioned characterizations and and yeah. performances at a certain point like so I, I don't think it gives them a lot of character in the writing but they're I mean especially just like stuff like with with Moby for example like I, I do think that th- it's so funny how few scenes we kind of get them together although there yeah. is one where as childhood friends they get together in the car under tense circumstances and they drink together which is another On connection the beach. Uh, for for Noah for the Blower, <laughs> where you have uh two two old friends uh getting drunk because they have found themselves in an insane conspiracy that's way bigger than them yeah but yeah on I, with the sequence on the beach and also when they go to the ancient ruins and they start like just fighting oh yeah one that's another that's the part to me is like dance
0: fight style oh yeah the no it's like i mean listen it's like i can't it's remember proto it's it is like proto island like it's like calypso gun it's i it's it's amazing it rocks
2: Yeah. It's very cool looking. Um, but it, it does like, once again, with just those, those, the, the tones, you would think that it would be a fight and then you see this style and there is kind of like a, I don't even know if you want to call it a silliness, um, but a a more lightheartedness than you would expect as he's telling the story about his, you know, girlfriend essentially being raped and impregnated by the, the millionaire (laughs) luxury resort hotel owner. um, and, and, you know, this is where he starts to express what happened, where uh, they 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 tried to get him through a snake bite and then afterwards cut his head off to make it look like it was something else. Um, and it's just it, it, I did find it a little wild to have that being explained while they're doing this kind of style in dance. But it's or, uh, fighting. But um, but it still works with with their relationship. The thing that I got a little bit. Uh, confused by was when um, Emmett shows up and he's got the gun to to Quinn and it looks like he shoots but th- then nothing happens to Quinn and then he kicks the gun and Emmett points the gun back at him but never shoots again and it, it felt uh, <laughs> did you guys feel a little confused by the logistics of the action just in that moment
0: absolutely but however yeah. I decided you know that was I will confess that I chalked that one up to movie magic
2: <laughs> absolutely hey, no problem with that no
0: <laughs> yeah it all it always
1: but, comes back to uh to the movie magic movie magic but yeah absolutely
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> but yeah so it has it has a big crazy set piece where all of this kind of comes to a fold helicopters are exploding snakes are popping out of money bags and biting pilots in like their their legs and you know huge 80s action and denzel you know having kind of uh, found out what it was that was happening on his island having killed basically everyone who was involved in it goes home soaking wet in the rain mourning his childhood friend and he r- restores his relationship um, with his wife uh, and I do find it the the moment where he like falls from the door frame into bed with her in the silk sheets and then you know oh, starts you know what you, you know, know call to
0: another great uh, Denzel role of that vein uh, ending of inside uh, inside man yes for
1: sure yeah i mean this honestly feels like the prototypical like denzel washington you know crime thriller in a way like you feel like the the structure of this was used like probably like 10 or 15 more times and it was always a good movie you can't go wrong with this (laughs) totally it's so
0: um in the uh i do got to run now but so i want to do some reduction i want to do some reductive ratings yeah for sure Um,
1: so pivoting towards, uh, reductive rating round, this one was in, in the similar boat to the whistleblower for me, but also once again, very, very strong three, almost soft four for me where I was like, you know, for me, um, I think that, you know, considering the politics, uh, hinted at in the climactic developments and the, you know, the (laughs) fact that the Blade Runner writer is involved here, this was a surprisingly kind of like light affair for me, but not necessarily a knock against, um. The movie, uh, because it is fun to see the CIA's anti-communist plots in Latin America, like, you know, defeated by some hilarious roundhouse kick sweeps Listen, and poisonous they failed snakes more jumping often out of helicopters. You know, we
0: shouldn't forget that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's incredibly charming and colorful and like musical as a film overall. Again, the great sort of like reggae soundtrack, beautiful colors, awesome Jamaican location work they do the lush jungles and plants and everything The you know, it's, it's very it has a lot of personality. And I f- it really does have this regional folk quality to it, making this community come alive in its style versus the pristine white mansion resorts and the, you know, the money and the, the people who fly out just to basically do whatever they want, kill whoever they want, fuck the nation of girls you know like that kind of aspect and i do think that this guy had a decent amount of style um you know there's some nice off-kilter wide angles to it and it really soaks in the surroundings and you know slow-mo during the action and you know lots of it's very wet movie very shadowy movie and yeah so you know this is a very wet and alive film considering how silly it kind of
0: gets at times and I give it yeah. a solid so, I give it, it to me it's a strong it's a strong ass four and it is one of my favorite of all time Denzel performances I love it yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, for you, James.
2: Strong three. Uh, but I'm also going to revisit this again. Really think Denzel is great. Love the focus of the on community and um, and just very colorful film that I that I loved. Uh, I, just the the look, the location work was was really awesome. Just every location they shot was beautiful. Um, um, a, a little bit confused with some of the the tonal changes, but I think for the most part they work. And again, the logistics of the final thing between Quinn and Emmett seemed a little confusing, but I still got a kick out of the snake biting the helicopter pilot and exploding into the ancient ruins and all that. So I, I had a good time with that. And I also, last thing, uh, I did kind of like how Mobby, uh, like, he's, he almost has this, like, ghostly feature to him a bit. He, he doesn't appear a lot in the film, but when he does, he just kind of appears and then quickly disappears. Uh, even the way yeah, they, Robert Townsend, yeah, that's, I was from about the to say, that's Robert Fire, that's the magic of Robert
0: Townsend, man. Yeah, and the writing, <laughs> yeah. and also he's like an ethereal dude.
2: Yeah, like even the way they uh, they they used it several times with the footsteps out of the ocean when, like, even at the end when you think he's dead, but maybe he left them the ten thousand dollar bill, all of that. So yeah, I thought that that was cool too. Also, um, so by yeah, the way, three. like
0: you know, like the diamond that Denzel finds, an inside man. Just saying. Yeah, and and the the last two things I wanted to bring up is that
1: you you really with the community stuff, you really see why he loves. This place, which reminded me a lot of the Carl Franklin film Devil in a Blue Dress, where, you know, he wants to preserve this place in the face of white power and money and political corruption. Um, But I I think in comparison to that film, which makes that tension between him and colonial forces kind of like more existential and his sort of mobile fight upwards out of his class despair, um, they make that really palpable. Um, And I think this ultimately just gets a little bit light and a little bit silly and it leans into it's kind of like Miami Vice villain of the week kind of climax stuff. And it's just (laughs) not as deeply emotionally felt as, say, like the bleak race relations realities and the impending doom of real estate development in South Central L.A. as as um uh, devil is. Yeah. But, uh, but I'd say that the script is pretty lean and Denzel is, um, you know, uh, he's really incredible and he really elevates a character that might not have had some, you know, some real shades of depth to him. And, uh, yeah, similar to Michael to Michael Caine in The Whistleblower, and you know just the way that he sexually eyes up a woman or has painfully long glances, remembering when this place was a you know a, a lovely, wonderful, playful place with his friends, and you know not not a place for creepy, murderous um, money men, and uh, yeah, and the very last uh, thing I wanted to bring up before we wrapped up was. Uh, this the, the, the name of this film was obviously derived from the name of a Bob Dylan song, and in his autobiography, which I saw a couple people bring up, and in, in his memoirs, uh, he had a great thing that he actually did end up seeing this movie at one point because it was named after his song and he wanted to see what that was up. So he said, um, In his memoir, he says on the way back to the house, I passed the local movie theater on Pretania Street where the mighty Quinn was showing years earlier. I had written a song called the mighty Quinn, which was a hit in England. And I wondered what the movie was about. Eventually, I'd sneak off and uh, go there to see it. It was a mystery suspense Jamaican thriller with Denzel Washington as the mighty Xavier Quinn, a detective who solves crimes. Uh, Funny. That's the way I always imagined him when I wrote the song. The mighty Quinn Denzel Washington. (laughs) He must have been a fan. Um, that's awesome so Eddie, so yeah Bob Dylan uh, must have been a surreal thing to see something called the mighty Quinn go in and watch it and they like do a a reggae cover of your song in the film and they like change the lyrics to like match the story and everything but yeah either way very cool
2: yeah 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 um, uh, the last thing that I'll mention too is uh, I I do find it a little strange just in tone where what we find out happened with uh, Mobby and his girlfriend is pretty uh disgusting and and uh, pretty uh, horrifying pretty hor- yeah pretty <laughs> horrifying and it just seems like the tone of the reveal and just the overall character especially what he had to do which is you know kill a kill a man and then decapitate his dead body to hide the hide the reason for the killing or, or the way that he was killed um I just yeah. feel like the character should have been dealing with maybe a, a little bit more Uh, ghosts from his past um i'm not saying that you know it's like i I understand why they were put in the position they were in but i still think that someone that would have to be driven to do that would have to deal with that a little harsher i guess um just on a personal level
1: it definitely does very uh, sometimes clumsily lurch from like the fun, sweaty 80s workout covers of like Bob Marley yeah, um, yeah. to, you know, like a dude being, you know, viciously decapitated or executed or, you know, like the and, and obviously bringing up these really horrifying politics. So it definitely there's a, a couple things get crossed, I think, while you're watching it. But you know, again, very. Uh, I I think the style does surprisingly kind of overpower some of those elements where you kind of just go along with it and kind of have fun with it.
0: Um, Last, (laughs) uh, before you go, uh, I just wanted to plug uh, season three of Blowback. It comes out in July. Uh, If you want to subscribe and pre-order it, we're selling the season now. You get the whole season all at once. Uh, and we're gonna be releasing it, you know, on a weekly basis for free, like we've done in the past later on. But if you want to get it all at once in July, it's $25. Go to blowback.supportingcast.fm. That's blowback.supportingcast.fm. Uh, we're gonna have an original score, like all the goodies that we had last season and more. We're really, really, really excited. And you'll be able to listen to the podcast on whatever is your preferred podcast listening platform. Um, yeah, uh, Josh and Jamie, thank yeah. you so much for having me on. This was a lot of fun. I'm glad coming, I got to man. talk about two of. Yeah, my thanks favorite. for
1: coming. That's going to wrap it up yeah. for for this week. That was the Whistleblower, 1986, and the Mighty Quinn from 1989. Thanks so much, Noah, for uh, for uh, my joining My pleasure. Us this and was a for blast. talking about these films with us. Uh, for our listeners, in one week's time, we are going to be back with a bonus episode exclusively over on the Patreon where we are going to be doing a big episode that I forgot to tell Jamie I was plugging in. We are going <laughs> to be doing uh, Brian De Palma's Blowout oh, from 1982, yeah. uh, an episode, uh, a movie I've wanted to cover on the show for many, many years. And I actually was lucky enough to show Jamie on the Criterion Blu-ray for his first watch and watch his mind be expanded by big old five. five by that last scene. Yeah, it was that that meme of dropping the Insta5 like as fast as possible on Letterboxd. That was Jamie's reaction. So we're gonna be talking about Brian De Palma's masterpiece Blowout, one of the like big last Brian De Palmas we haven't talked about. It's such We've a good about him so to, much. uh performance too. Yeah, so good. And uh we're gonna be pairing it with a film I haven't seen but I heard very much connects to um, blow out in an interesting way, I think to do with kind of like the, the artist as the investigator or the killer and a little bit of, you know, you know, he's a sound engineer and special effects. I think he deals uh, in actually making movies might even be in the special effects department. I don't know. I'll have to wait and see. <laughs> uh, but the movie is called special effects. And I believe nice. it's, I can't remember if it's 84, four uh, but it's Larry Cohen. And it's actually the very last Larry Cohen directed film that I haven't seen. Oh, wow. um, nice. I've been saving it specifically for this episode. So yeah, we're going to be talking about two show favorites, Brian De Palma, Larry Cohen, Blowout, Special Effects. Patreon.com slash podcast. That's going to be next week's um, bonus episode. It's probably going to be a big boy. And then in two weeks' time, we're going to be back with a special guest where we're going to be going classics mode. We're going to be remembering some classics. We're going to be one... um, talking about 12 angry men. Oh, perhaps cool. you've heard of it. Perhaps you've seen it. Perhaps you've read it. You know, it's, it's pretty much a class. Everyone has heard of 12 angry men. So we're going to be going courtroom drama mode a little bit on that one, but we're going to be pairing it with another sort of uh, film that interrogates kind of mob mentality and the idea of justice and the death penalty and violence we're going to be talking about a Western that m- way, way predates 12 Angry Men called The Oxbow Incident, oh,
2: sick. which,
1: um, if I recall correctly, is a William Wellman film, I believe. I um, yeah, think I've yes, this William on my list a. Wellman. A bit, so that's exciting. Yeah, it's a 1943 Western. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, it's uh, starring Henry Fonda, and it is just awesome. So yeah, we're going to be, we're going to be talking about, uh, Good couple we're going to be talking about some more, some sort of philosophical moral morality tales, uh, done in uh, classic American genres. That's what we're going to be doing in a uh, two weeks time. And it's going to lead us into maybe, maybe a couple more Western conversations, Ooh-hoo. small little hint there. We're going to be, we might be going Western mode for a little bit, um, But yeah, thanks so much, uh, as always, for listening and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy.